I do want to reflect on the fact that this is a challenging mission. We've seen challenges just getting all our systems to work together, and that's why we do a flight test. It's, it's about uh, going after the things that can't be modeled, and, uh, and, and we're learning uh, uh, by taking more risk on this mission before we put crew on there. And those challenges, you know, the, this complex of a vehicle and, and where we're flying and, and, uh, and how we're getting there. Um, you know, we'll continue to look at things on, on uh, the vehicle on SLS performance as we uh, go uphill uh, to make sure we're getting the performance and the controllability out of all the uh, propulsive elements um, on the first stage and our ICPS uh, performance raising the, the perigee and giving us the TLI transluter injection that we need. And then, of course, Orion um, getting through all its deployments of the solar rays and, and testing of its propulsion system. The, the good part in all this is uh, our teams have continued to grow and learn uh, about the vehicle, um, and we're, we're uh, confident, but like I said, it's a flight test. We'll continue to look for every, every bit of uh, sign everywhere along the missions. We, we focus a lot about getting to T0, but I think, uh, uh, I think uh, the flight control team, Rick and Judd and, and Mike Serfin and mission management have given you some of the things that we look for during the mission, too, to meet our objectives of understanding performance and testing the heat shield and getting the vehicle back. So uh, the preparation have, have gone um, really well uh, since getting back to the VAB, and we've certainly had unexpected things through this whole flow, um, including the hurricane. So you know, just a little over a week from getting that countdown started and, and continuing back on this uh, this path towards this challenging flight test. So with that, let me turn over to Cliff and let him fill you in on, on what's been going on in the BAB. Okay, thank you, Jim. Good afternoon, everyone, and uh, it's really great to be back here, ready to roll back out to the pad. Uh, since rolling back to the VAB for Hurricane Ian, the team has been hard at work. The work in the VAB has gone smoothly, and we've been able to uh, protect the rocket from the hurricane, um, and we've been able to get into our inspections and make repairs to the TPS and replace FTS hardware uh, or flight termination system hardware there, uh, recharge the Orion batteries as well as our secondary payload. Uh, batteries, and we've even replaced some of the payload batteries. Uh, the ex execution by the team has been excellent. Our initial focus was on gaining access to the vehicle so we could get to work on the second stage, which was our critical path. Work included battery changeouts, transducer replacement, and other testing. As this work was proceeding, we were changing out core uh, flight termination system components, core stage flight termination system components, including the batteries and uh, as well as we changed out the uh, booster batteries. Uh, this past weekend, we have performed our flight termination system testing. Uh, we started retracting our platforms. Um, we're actually retracting our final platform now, and the crawler transporter is now in the high bay underneath the mobile launcher. Um, in addition to the operational work going on in High Bay 3, our launch team has been preparing for the next attempt and uh, actually went through a full simulation uh, launch simula simulation. Uh, right now, we are on target for our uh, rollout call to stations. We'll be at 6 p.m. tonight, and our expected first motion is one minute after midnight uh, tonight. Um, let's see, through the efforts of the team here in the VAB, um, we have been able to gain about a one day of margin for the pad operations uh, to account for, as Jim mentioned, weather earlier, 
but that gives them some margin to really uh, help our probability of hitting that uh, 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 November 14th uh, first launch attempt. Um, also, at the pad, we'll be refreshing some science samples for our space biology payload. And then uh, right now, we are very confident in our team and our systems. And um, we're looking forward to getting back out of the pad and getting launched on the 14th. Um, Charlie will be here um, again talking uh, around the mission management team L-2 timeframe about uh, specific launch countdown uh, items. And that's it. OK. Thank you, Cliff. Uh, we'll now get into the question and, question and answer portion of today's call. Uh, you can press star 1 to get added to the queue, and star 2 if you'd like to be removed from the queue. Um, I do also want to note that we uh, have Mark Berger from the launch, uh, pardon me, who's the launch weather officer with Space Launch Delta 45. Um, we have him here because, as Jim noted, we do have a storm while watching. So Mark can help with any weather-related questions. Um, Let's see, your lines are on mute, and the operator will open and close your mic when we come to your question. And with that, we'll get started with Marsha Dunn with the Associated Press. Yes, hi, good afternoon. Um, probably for Jim, what do you lose by launching at night? Um, the cons, especially if things don't go well, and how long would you have to wait for the next daylight opportunity for launch? Thanks. Uh, yeah, thanks, Marsha. Um, yeah, I think <clears throat> we we have uh, the the visual uh, references. Obviously, are what what you lose in, in terms of uh, launching uh, at night. But obviously, we have IR cameras. We're going to get some visuals because just launching at night and and the big fire coming out the back is going to help light things up for us too. So it's it's that uh, it's it's just some of those visual images, but. Um, you know, uh, we have a great number of cameras on here that we'll still get shots from, and uh, and, and critical elements we'll we'll see the things that we need, um, and then uh, we get we get back to the daylight launches. Of course, I'm I don't have my notebook here, but uh, the 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 daytime launches uh, start I think around the. 22nd, in terms of when they would be daytime launches, we, we don't have access to those those days in the window right now. Um, the holiday airspace uh, release program that is run by the FAA, our, our next opportunity beyond the 16th and 19th um, that we have clear is, is the 25th. Um, we'd have to, again, work with our federal partners if, if we needed to open up one of those days um, to have access to launch in. Our next question is from Bill Harwood of CBS News. Hey, thanks very much, guys. And uh, this is for either one of you. You know, you get asked this question at every one of these briefings, but I'll ask it again for the record. I, I know you've said the boosters are good as is for the duration of the period, but is there a definitive date by which you have to launch or you can't? Um, or is this simply open-ending, open-ended based on your analysis of, you know, of the boosters? I'm just curious if there's some limit on how long you can stay at the pad before you really have to do something. Thanks. Yeah, let, let me let me uh, give the kind of the overall limited life uh, thing, Bill, and, and I, I appreciate you asking it because 
um, we should keep it at the forefront of our minds. And I can tell you, we did do that. And, and Cliff can maybe give you an example of two or th- you know, we did going back to the VAB this time that, um, as I've said, we have a, uh, a list, a, a number of things on a limited life item list. Each of them have a different revisit date. Uh, that's my term. Um, when we have to go back and, and redo the analysis and look at the assumptions in the analysis, and, and it's really more a function of when do we feel like those assumptions are, are no longer good and, uh, and the boosters fall in, into that category. I think I, I would be doing our team and you a disservice by saying we can just go forever because I don't think that's the case. I think we look at and look at the analysis every time with uh, a different set of lenses thinking about what else could have changed. Just like we, we looked at the role decision today and we're talking about, you know, 40 knot winds, uh, potential 40 knot winds for the storm. Well, how's that compare to what we looked at for uh, Hurricane Ian and how's that look for the duration? How's that factor into the, uh, the fatigue life? Uh, or uh, uh, the cycles on there, so so I think we we uh, we look at it in in the way that we laid out in the analysis, and we look at it the frequency that we need, and we look at it with the the fresh view of things, and and don't forget that we also have our independent technical authorities that are part of our uh, part of our team that. Uh, are are designed to make sure we're we're not all in a, a group think and saying that yeah everything's fine. Now I trust our team, our our mainline team, to do that, but we also have that check and balance. So Cliff, anything from a limited life that you want to talk about that you looked at in the in the BAB this time? Yeah, Jim. So uh, as you know, the batteries, um, particularly our flight termination system batteries, have a limited life on them, and we changed those out. Uh, just to add to the boosters, you know, we did do measurements even before we stacked, um, just in case we got into a situation where we needed to extend the life there, where we actually measured the propellant uh, slump, as it was called, on each segment, um, so that that could benefit an analysis if we got into this situation. So um, that is certainly paying dividends now. Um, so, uh, but like I said, batteries we changed out. We did have um, the our sister programs um, look throughout their uh, limited operating life items and make sure we were capturing everything uh, required as far as changeouts. Uh, but batteries and uh, our command receiver decoders um, also uh, we changed out. So we took a look at all the hardware and made sure we were capturing those things to make sure we didn't run out of life on those. Okay, our next question is from Eric Berger of Ars Technica. Hi, thanks very much for doing this. Uh, a couple questions. I think one maybe for Jim, maybe both for Jim, I'm not sure, but can you help set expectations for this launch period? Um, you know, how confident should we be or not in, um, in Artemis 1 launching you know, in the current launch period that ends November 26th? And then following that up, if you don't launch this month, would you stay on the pad for the December period if you could get approval from the range and had no reason, like a major league fix or something like that, to go back to the VAB? So would you try to stay on the pad, basically, for the December launch period? Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Eric. Um, you know, this part of my answer goes with what I said up front in terms of being confident. You know, I think we have three 
uh, three good attempts lined up right now in the 14th, 16th, and 19th. I think what, we, what we've learned in every wet dress, um, our two launch attempts, and the tanking test uh, help build our confidence. Uh, the unknown unknowns are, um, you know, I don't, I don't mean that as a cop-out, but that's certainly something that can get us. I think uh, when we're in that uh, the final throws of the, the launch count, and, uh, you know, one, one thing can kick us out. Um, one, one telemetry parameter can, can kick us out. We, we want to make sure that um, uh, we're prepared for that. That goes into sometimes sticking a longer launch window so that we have time to recycle and recover from it if, if, uh, if we can based on what it is. Um, so, uh, you know, I think, again, I don't think we would roll out if we didn't, uh, um, if we didn't feel confident we could get there. We're trying to protect three launch attempts at least in this period. Um, I know I've gone back and forth with the team on um, uh, their desire to keep three, which I respect. And I'm, I'm not just talking about this one, just when we've talked about other launch attempts. And then as far as staying on the pad, uh, you know, I think uh, we, we obviously uh, were um, fortunate that the range uh, heard us the last time, listened to our technical data, uh, listened to the rationale. Um, and I think we'll, if, if we were faced with that again and we didn't go in this launch period, we've talked about uh, how a role takes cycles and uh, uh, out of the tank, uh, out of the vehicle, I should say, and the fatigue side of that. So we looked, we do everything we could to protect that. And uh, if we don't get there, I'm, I'm sure we'd uh, talk internally about the, the, our willingness and, and readiness to go work with uh, the range. Okay, next up we have Emily Speck with Fox Weather. Hey, my question is for Mark Berger. Um, I just wanted to check in and see what weather items you're keeping an eye on for rollout, and then looking ahead to the launch window, do you have any concerns with the two systems in the tropics right now? Um, yeah. Okay, Emily, good afternoon. Uh, so as far as rollout tonight, things look almost ideal for us uh, in terms of the uh, weather constraints here, really not tracking any concerns during the overnight hours, maybe a couple of showers, but that's certainly not any sort of impediment to our roll operation. So for tonight, everything looks good there. Now, as far as uh, looking ahead here over the next week or so, of course, as mentioned, we are monitoring the potential development of at least a, an area of low pressure uh, somewhere near Puerto Rico or just south of there uh, this weekend that will slowly move uh, to the northwest over the course of early next week. And so there's still a lot of uh, inconsistencies on exactly where that may end up and really whether or not it even does uh, acquire uh, significant tropical characteristics to even become a named storm. That's all uh, very much uh, out in play at this point. Uh, in fact, uh, the National Hurricane Center just has it as a 30% chance of uh, becoming a named storm. However, that being said, uh, the models are very consistent on developing uh, some sort of a, a low pressure, and regardless of whether or not it's named, pretty much what we're targeting is that uh, for middle part of next week, uh, especially as we go Monday night into potentially Tuesday night or early Wednesday, us having the highest impacts from that particular system as it approaches the Florida Peninsula. And so that may look like 
sustained winds of around 25 knots and potentially some uh, rain squalls that get uh, achieve a, a wind gust of 35 to 40 knots. But again, those are well within our constraints as far as riding out. So uh, again, we'll have impacts from that in terms of the wind, but again, we're not uh, looking at uh, any likelihood at this point of uh, seeing a strong system emerge out of this. However, again, we are continuing to watch that for potential impacts into the middle of next week. Thank you. Next, we have Kenneth Chang with the New York Times. Ben, can you hear us? Okay, we will come back to Ken. Let's go ahead to Tim Bernholtz with Court. Uh, hello, thank you for taking my question. Um, two questions, actually. One, I was curious if we could get an update on the cube stats. I know there might have been some battery or life-limiting issues with those. Are those uh, ready to go for launch? And then just a question. We're tracking right now a Chinese rocket stage that is sort of tumbling back to Earth. Uh, I know that the SLS core stage gets disposed of, and I wonder if you could just speak briefly about how you ensure that it does so safely. Thanks. Uh, Cliff, you want to take the CubeSat one? I sure do. Um, thanks, Tim, uh, for the question. Yeah, so the CubeSats, um, we did recharge them uh, when we got back into the VAB. We did that on October 13th, um, and that should get us to where they're good for about five months. And, um, yeah, so uh, that was about a day-long process of hooking up and then uh, recharging them. But uh, they are charged and uh, ready to go. Thank you. And uh, to the second part of your question, Tim, on the disposal of SLS, um, you know, NASA, you know, with, with the Outer Space, starting with the Outer Space Treaty and going through the Artemis Accords and our internal documentation, uh, we have very clear direction to safely dispose of what we put in orbit. SLS has a a uh, very well-defined plan for disposal for all the different trajectories that it flies based on uh, when we fly. And uh, and that dispo disposal plan, you know, um, puts the the vehicle on a trajectory that uh, after, after Orion separates, uh, puts it on a trajectory to do a, a safe disposal and where it, where it doesn't burn up, it's, it's in an area of, uh, of the ocean where it, uh, won't uh, won't affect anyone, but that that is, I think, core to what NASA does, and uh, and is our responsibility to safely dispose of of vehicles. And and uh, when uh, when we start uh, from the get go, we do that. And if if there's an issue, as we've seen on um, uh, a couple other instances, we we correct that. And uh, and that's that's been the the get from the get go of SLS. That's been the plan. Our next question is from Mike Howard with American Spectator. Yes, thanks for taking the call. On those CubeSats, you mentioned, I guess this is for Cliff, that uh, they had indeed been recharged uh, good for five months. Is that all 10 CubeSats? I understood that only four had been recharged. Could you give us a blow-by-blow -blow account on how the CubeSats stand as far as their charges go? And how long it'll take before we know which ones have actually got on mission? Thanks. 
Right. So, um, again, Mike, thanks for the question. Um, so there, there are 10 right now um, loaded on the vehicle uh, inside the Orion stage adapter. And um, right now we, we recharged five um, for this um, to give them a new charge. Uh, some of them cannot be charged um, from the vehicle through or through the ground support equipment um, and uh, be recharged. So uh, those are identified. I don't have the list in front of me of exactly which ones those are, um, but there are some that just by their design cannot be recharged through the GSE. So uh, we recharged what could be um, recharged in the uh, configuration we're in, in the VAB, and um, that, that's kind of where we are. And Mike, uh, if you can reach out by email, we are happy to uh, send you a list of which items were, uh, which payloads were recharged, if, if that would be helpful. Okay, our next question is from Ken Kramer with Face Up Close. Hi, thank you for doing this, and hopefully everything will go well. Um, I'd like to ask about the flight termination system batteries. Right, so you, you um, recharged them or replaced them. How, can you tell us anything about, about the status of those batteries when you checked them? I mean, were they, were they still pretty well charged? Or, were, did they meet the requirements that you needed for the Space Force? Or what was their status, if you could clarify that a little? Thanks. Yeah, so Ken, um, I, don't have, I don't have the data on the batteries we removed in terms of their um, charge status once they were removed. As far as the batteries we did, uh, the new batteries that went back in, um, you know, that was all completed, the actual activation of those batteries um, earlier in October, and then uh, we went ahead and changed them out, like I mentioned earlier, we, into the, uh, the core stage uh, flight termination system batteries were replaced, the booster flight termination system batteries were replaced as well. Um, and, and again, those, uh, basically the booster has approximately 120 days of life on the batteries uh, from activation and the core stage have 90 days. So um, as far as what's in the vehicle now, we're obviously in very good shape. Um, I don't have the data, again, right here to say what the charge was, um, you know, after we removed them. Next up, we have David Denault with About Space Today. Thank you. Um, I guess I'm still a little puzzled. Um, we have uh, an opportunity to see this in the daylight, and I heard your explanation. However, couldn't we have waited to a daylight launch? I mean, you have a short launch window to begin with. The daylights have uh, extended hours just in case. So help, kind of help me understand why this rush to just to put this on the pad. Is it dollars that you have to consider? Is it personnel? Or could we have waited? Yeah, so um, I, I guess, you know, we, we're, our, our goals, by the way, the 120-minute the 120 120 minute windows aren't just unique to, to daylight. We, we have those at nighttime as well. Um, we, we don't see it as a barrier to getting the data that we need. In this launch period, um, we're limited by the, the um, days we can launch uh, based on uh, the FAA requirements that, that are put on us. Um, and in the end, we're comfortable launching at night and 
we feel like we're going to get the and, and the imagery that we need uh, to, to track the vehicle to understand what might come off the vehicle. We know there's going to be some uh, some of that, but we'll we'll get that from the radar and, and the uh, infrared imaging that we had. Um, so so from our perspective, it's uh, it's it's okay to launch at night, and that's where our technical teams got to. Our next question is from Jeff Faust with Space News. Hey, good afternoon. Uh, just a quick question on the FTS batteries. Um, how long does the, certi the current certification on the batteries run to? Um, I assume it goes through the, the three upcoming three launch windows, um, but if you need to slip to the 25th, would you have to go back to the range and uh, seek an extension as you did earlier? Thanks. Right, so um, right now we are certified, the batteries are certified, again, the, all, both the booster and the um, core stage batteries were activated in the uh, first, second week of October time frame, and uh, the core stage batteries have a three-month uh, life on them, um, so that would put us into the January time frame, and then the booster batteries have a approximately 120-day life on them, and that would put them into February. So as far as covering launch periods 28 and 29, um, from an FTS um, standpoint as far as the battery life um, will be okay we're good um, and then obviously like Jim said earlier um, you know if if it comes to it and uh, that would be something the NASA you know the uh, would go forward to the range and and discuss if they want to extend past the current 25-day uh, waiver next we'll go to Brett Tingley with space.com Hey, thanks for taking my question. I'm just wondering, following all of these scrub attempts and a lot of the uh, public criticism of the program that's been out there in the media, what's morale like among the Artemis and uh, SLS, SLS programs? Hey, Cliff, why don't you talk about your, your team down there, and then I'd like to make a, uh, a note at the end. Okay, sure will. Um, so, Brett, um, I would say from the standpoint um, of the Kennedy team, you know, when when we had to roll back from the hurricane, um, you know, I will tell you it was uh, it was disappointing. Um, but what I will say is the team immediately uh, got to work. Um, literally, when we were allowed on center after the hurricane, um, got to work. And um, the best way I would say, uh, you know, the enthusiasm and the, the uh, efficiency of the team has been uh, tremendous, outstanding. As a matter of fact to where uh, we were able to recommend to um, NASA leadership, you know, a November 14th date, and that was as soon as we rolled back, and um, that had a few days of margin in it, and uh, we were able to keep that margin to where the team um, constantly performed, um, you know, to very high ex uh, level of expectations and uh, put us in a position now where we're ready to launch or roll out and get ready to launch on the 14th. Um, so, you know, we are back um, in terms of... Uh, ready to go and uh, excited you know, down here. And, and I, I would just add overall that, um, you know, these are, these are a professional group of people who their first allegiance is to the hardware and doing things right. And when we give you all the, the discussions like this, I, I, I appreciate the questions um, and the ability to kind of address things like you just said, hey, the criticisms that are thrown our way. We're, we're spending tax, tax, day, 
taxpayer dollars, we should be open to, to criticism and answering questions. But it will never put us in the place of pushing too hard to launch too fast or making a bad decision. And I think we're making decisions in, in along the lines that we've been asked to, that we've set up our processes to do. And uh, and the criticisms that come our way, you know, I'll I'll take a hundred percent of them, um, and and explain them. I I can't say we're going to agree in the end, but I will always answer the critics that we have. And uh, what I ask the teams to do, and I hope they do, is they just focus on on getting the hardware done and uh, and and doing it the right way. So thank you for the for the criticisms. It gives us a chance to tell our story, uh, tell about the hard things we're doing. As I mentioned, this is a really difficult mission, and there's chance for things to go uh, to go in uh, anomalous ways. But our job's to figure it out, and our job's to do the right thing with this hardware, and that's what we're going to do every time. And we'll be here to answer your questions and criticisms every time too. Thanks. Uh, our next question is from Elizabeth Neary with Monarch Granger's student newspaper. Hello, uh, can you hear me? Yes, we can. Okay, thank you. Uh, thank you so much for answering our questions today. Uh, I was wondering, what do you hope to discover through the Artemis program, and what impact do you hope to make on the next generation? Um, wow. Can, can I answer one of the other critical questions first? That's a tough question. Uh, no, it's not. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's great. Thank you for being part of this, by the way. Um, uh, I'd like to learn more about your, uh, your newspaper. Um, you know, what we're really ha hoping to discover is the history of the moon and how that relates to the history of Earth um, and what we can learn about terrestrial planet formation and evolution. And we're going to do that by putting uh, robotic missions and humans on the surface of the moon and doing strategic science, science that has been called out in our decadal surveys. And while we're there, we're going to operate systems uh, in a partial gravity environment that will help us learn how to operate in that environment, which is very similar to Mars. So we're ready to send people onto Mars. And we're also going to operate in orbit of the moon um, to stage our missions from, to do science from, to, to look at space weather effects and test some of our systems there before we go on to the moon. And, and my hope from an impact perspective, and I talked about the science and strategic science that will happen, but honestly my hope is that um, uh, folks uh, like you who are in school today, um, uh, at all ages, can see themselves in the people that work on our programs, the people that we're going to land on the moon, and uh, and are inspired to go take on careers in engineering, math, or, or science, um, and uh, and and take my spot or Cliff's spot one day. Okay, we have another question from Bill Harwood with CBS News. Yeah, hey, thanks, guys. And and Jim, I mean, is, is there? A, I just wanted to ask this booster question one last time. I promise. But is there a date that you guys just don't want to give us, or is it really open ended at this point on booster lifetime? 
I mean, I know you guys always have an end date on stuff. I'm just wondering what is it for the boosters as of today? Thank you. Yeah, Bill, I don't, I don't have the limited life uh, list here in front of me um, to tell you, like, the, uh, when I answered your question earlier, to tell you, like, how frequently we do that analysis um, or, or what, that, what that revisit date might be. Um, so what I'd ask is let, let me um, uh, work with uh, John Honeycutt and his team uh, on SLS and, uh, and get you that revisit date uh, or revisit a time period and, and see what that date uh, might be, okay? Okay. Hey, Jim, I do have um, some dates in front of me uh, as far oh, as great. the Thanks. Um, Thanks. Yeah, the left and right-hand motor segment stacked. Um, you know, it's when we did the original, when you stacked your first segment on the aft segment, you start a clock. Um, that was originally 12 months, and it's currently uh, been uh, analyzed up to 23 months. And that expires, um, one piece expires on the 9th of December of this year, and the other one is the 14th of December of this year. And then there's a, a booster environmental exposure uh, lolly as well that expires uh, December 15th of this year. Yeah, and then we, we'd go back into an, uh, an analysis cycle to see where we could do that extension again, much like it was for the first one, as Cliff said, you know, that was initially 12 months. Thanks, Cliff. We'll go to Eric Berger with Ars Technica. Hi, thanks for coming back to me. Just a question about sort of the impacts of Ian. Um, were there any damage to any Artemis facilities outside of the VAB? Uh, I know you probably did some pretty detailed inspections of the crawler way, um, the launch pad. It, it, you haven't said anything, so I assume everything's fine, but I just wanted to clarify that sort of, you know, what your posture was after Hurricane in terms of any damage to the site. That from the from a Kennedy Space Center standpoint, uh, no, there was no real damage um, that impacted our ability to get back to right get back to work right away after the uh, storm passed. Um, yeah, the, from a um, vehicle standpoint, you know, we rolled back into the VAB. The doors were shut, so uh, all was well there. Um, the pad was um, fine as well. So um, yeah, so uh, there was real no damage to any of the exploration ground system. Uh, uh, facilities. Our next question is from Marsha Dunn with the AP. Yes, hi again. Um, I'm wondering if the recent work in the VAB uncovered any potential hydrogen leak causes, any um, weak spots, smoking guns, anything else that you might have found to explain the rash of leaks that occurred uh, with the early launch attempts and even the testing. And I'm wondering, too, what, what's the latest leading theory for the leaks? Is there anything in particular that seems to top the list? Thanks. Let's see. Uh, Jim, I can uh, talk, I guess, the work back in the VAB from the standpoint of that hydrogen leak. Um, yeah, there, there's not really a smoking gun, per se. Um, we did not open that cavity back up in the VAB. Um, as you recall, we did a tanking test at the pad um, to, to test the system out, and it really became um, a function of, um, you know, controlling the pressures uh, with the, um, the hydrogen sphere 
and uh, being able to um, work those pressures to the point where we were able to then get the, the leak under control and then actually control things and how we load. And um, so that has gone into our procedures and how we'll uh, attempt our next attempts. Um, so like I said, we did not go into that uh, area. We did not break that interface since that tanking test. And um, we feel pretty confident that we're um, through the loading procedures and controlling the pressures that we, we understand it much better now. And our next question is from Mike Howard uh, with the American Spectator. Yeah, I'm back on board, thanks. The question about when NASA will have an idea or be able to report out on which of the deployed CubeSats actually were able to get on target and, and stay viable. When can we expect that kind of a feedback? Yeah, I, I think uh, I think some of it is the answer. It, it depends. You know, the some of the CubeSats that we weren't able to recharge. Um, but just based on their configuration in the vehicle, no matter uh, when we rolled back. Um, some of them, you know, they, they may need to charge some. Uh, their solar panels may need to gather enough uh, sunlight to charge their batteries before they go, and, and that's really just going to be dependent on their state of charge um, when when we deploy them. Uh, they, all, all the CubeSats, CubeSats have a communication plan with the uh, space communication and navigation program at uh, at NASA, that uh, defines the support. Um, they all have contingencies, so uh, you know I, I I don't know that the specifics. We can go see if there's a, a specific anticipated timeline, which I'm sure there is. But I will tell you, it's probably got some variable variability in it. Um, just the way CubeSats work, let alone ones that, that need some time to charge. So let us take the action, um, Rachel, if we, if we could, to, to follow up there. Move into that. And I don't believe we have any other questions in the queue, so we will go ahead and wrap up. Uh, I want to thank everyone for joining us today. Uh, you can follow the rollout activities on the NASA Artemis blog, which is available at blogs. NASA.gov slash Artemis. And you can also watch the rollout activities on the Kennedy Space Center Newsroom YouTube channel. We'll have a live stream of the rocket in the VAB beginning at 6 p.m. tonight prior to its departure for the launch pad. Uh, and in addition, we will have a replay of this teleconference online later this afternoon. You can find that by visiting the Media Resources tab at NASA.gov slash Artemis dash one. And with that, thank you for joining us.